A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in today's episode? I interviewed Nicola Askham, a data governance consultant known simply as the Data Governance Coach. And she's also the host of the Data Governance Podcast. So some key takeaways or thoughts from Nicola's point of view. Number one, the key point of data governance. Ensure the data we use is the right data for the right people to better address our business challenges. Everything you do with data governance should circle back to that key point. Number two, in doing data governance right, you need to set yourself up to take in feedback and iterate. You absolutely won't get everything right up front. That's okay. It's crucial to set expectations for yourself and others that your data governance approach will evolve as you learn more. Number three, If you see Data Mesh as being about making better data more accessible to your current data consumers only, that's a very big opportunity wasted. Aim to significantly expand your pool of data citizens. Not everyone should be a data scientist, but data should play a role in many more people's jobs. Number four, to get going in Data Mesh, you need to get your data governance to quote unquote good enough and start moving forward. This might sound familiar. A lot of people have said this, right? It's it's very important to hammer on this point that we don't have to get it perfect, right? Think about what you need. Is it the very complicated standard for interoperability across every domain ever that's going to last the next de- decade? Or is it about getting people to understand and trust the data they can now access? And so you want some data quality standards that people can uh measure their data quality against or something like that. It's probably the second, right? 
Number five, to drive buy-in for data governance, you should tailor your message to the audience. It's very hard to have universal appeal around a specific selling point of data governance, but data governance can and should drive value for everyone. Does that sound like data mesh? Sounds like that to me. You need to tailor your message around data mesh too, right? Number six, every data governance approach should be tailored to the organization, but it should start from a few building blocks. You know, policy mandates is the first, processes and standards is the second, and roles and responsibilities. There's much more about exactly what that means in the episode. Number seven, central governance teams are crucial. They make it easy for federated teams to do what's necessary to comply with regulations and things and internal standards. So there isn't just, you know, the kind of silos, right? We don't want to have silos around data governance, but their job is to make it to have as little friction as possible in preventing those silos. The, the central governance team should be a value add, not a gatekeeper. They're not making the specific day-to-day decisions on data. They're federating that out. They're you know, giving the domains and things, the ability, the capabilities to do that with little friction. Number eight, make sure teams understand data governance can add significant value to them. Participation is not just some mandate. It has a benefit. Then make sure you are actually providing that value, right? You can't just talk the talk. Number nine, in data mesh, you will likely need new roles to handle these new data governance needs where previously there were some vague ownership, you know, kind of requirements that nobody was really looking at, you should really look to get really explicit around who owns what and why and, and you know, really put it down on paper. Now, tying into that point, number 10, you will likely have different sets of requirements under roles across your domain. That's, that's okay. Look to create a standard model for roles and responsibilities and adjust it where it needs to be adjusted. It's okay to have non-uniform rules, but there needs to be a starting point for domains to go from. And finally, number 11, when starting out in data mesh, look for a relatively simple first use case, but don't only stick to simple use cases early in your journey. It will make it much harder to tackle the difficult use cases later. You don't want a mesh that can't tackle the the hard but high value use cases, right? I think that's a unique point that really hasn't been made in a lot of in a lot of places. So I think that's one to really think about as you're heading into uh, listening to this episode. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Nicola Askam here, who is um, a data governance expert and consultant, and she's also the host of the Data Governance Podcast. And we're going to be talking a lot about, um, I, I reached out to Nicola specifically, we'd been talking a little bit, but then I got a little bit more insistent when I saw that Andy Kenna at uh, Renri had posted on LinkedIn about working with uh, Nicola about um 
the governance aspects of what they were doing with their data mesh implementation. So we're going to be talking about, you know, a lot of things, data governance at the high level, but also like, how do you actually think about doing this in practice? How do you take these, these kind of highfalutin concepts around data governance and really think about how can we actually look at how this evolves in the day-to-day and that there's so many folks out there that I talk to where data governance has been a blocker because they think they have to get everything absolutely perfect up front. And, you know, personally, I don't think that's that's the case. Nicola may, may uh, have arguments with me or, or pushback on that as well, but um I'm really excited to kind of dig into a story of of kind of how do we actually think about applying this, especially in a highly regulated space like insurance, right? Like that's a a, a financial services tough space. So um, with that, Nicola, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. As, as you've already said, my name is Nicola Askham. I'm known as the data governance coach, and I help organizations understand and manage their data better. Um, I've been doing this for nearly 20 years now, and I've helped loads of corporates and more recently um, some public sector as well um, reduce costs and inefficiencies and, and um, remain relevant is, is what I like to say. And I think that fits nicely into what you're saying about I view data governance not as a blocker, but very much as an enabler and a, and a facilitator. Yeah, and, and I think a, a great place to kind of start this conversation is is a little bit around that. Like when we were talking in the pre-call, we were talking about kind of a quote unquote normal governance approach, right? It's not that we want to, I think with data mesh, so much of this is about a, a evolving the way that we work, evolving the concepts that already exist instead of trying to come up whole cloth with everything new, because um, I've talked with this a lot from people of like trying to, to just completely come up with everything from scratch. It's a it's a big ask to as an understatement. So, like, why don't you? Can we start with what your concept is of kind of what has become the normal way of of doing governance? Is it the central? Is it the the you know centralized by committee and kind of slow approach? Or what what do you think is kind of decent practices? And then how do we start to to look at how do we apply that to data mesh? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think, um, you know, I've read, you know, loads of things online. Um, It's so much if you Google data governance these days, and they tell you about a centralized model or a distributed model or federated model. And I think what I have found over the years is actually a combination of of both. So, because I think when people say a centralized model, they're talking about you know one small team of people making decisions on all data across an organization, and I I don't think that's useful. I don't think, particularly when you're talking about a larger organization, that that any you know small number of people could actually have all that knowledge to make the right decisions all the time. So I do like to have a more federated approach where the the right people in the business are signing up to own the data and make decisions about it. But I do think that they need some central support. So I suppose this is where perhaps I go for a bit of a hybrid, um, that you do need a central data governance team and you probably do need to get your data owners together regularly on a data governance council or committee, whatever you want to call it. And I think that kind of approach seems to work well for everybody. Um, I've not changed from that for many years now. So whilst the individual framework, I might help my clients design 
will be subtly different because it has to work for that organization and their particular data and their, whatever challenges they're facing. But I think that concept of having some central support, but actually data ownership being out in the business um, in various places, wherever it's appropriate, is, is the one thing that remains the same. I think that's a really important um, kind of question of what is the central team's you said the central committee, but you also said central support. Is the central team making decisions on any one piece of data or are they there to only provide support or are they there to make kind of the overarching, um, here are the ways that we're going to do this so that we have standards and practices versus, um, you know, we're actually going to be making the decisions on anything day to day or we're going to collaborate with you. Yeah, I, I think that's what's coming through of the kind of support and the, the centralized kind of practices and making it so that it's easy to, to do governance at the federated level. But I'd love to hear kind of what you've seen that works and what doesn't in that. Yeah, so I think generally your your central team, which is going to be head, you know, headed up by your, I don't know, your data governance lead, and and depending on your size of organization, they may have some support from data governance analysts or data quality analysts. So I think what they're they're not probably making any decisions on anything, and that's the one thing that I always find is important is that how can a central team, if I was your data governance lead, how could I make a decision? on what your data quality standard should be. The only people who know that are the people that are using the data in the business. So what I I think the central team are doing are um, almost like they create the framework in the first place and then they make sure it happens. And in the early days, there is going to be a lot more hand-holding of the of the data owners and the data stewards because if you're just starting and you're really early on and you go to a data owner and go oh scott you know you're the data owner for customer data could you give us some data quality standards please you're probably going to look blankly at us and go well how do i know what to do what what do i do kind of thing so whilst i don't think the central team can say to you oh here you go scott here's all the data quality standards you need what they can do is say, well, there's different ways we can measure customer data and they can take you through it all and help you work out what would be good enough for you and help you set the standards. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing that comes through in a lot of, of the conversations of people who are comfortable with what they're doing with their governance in Data Mesh is that um, it is a it's about helping and it's about facilitating and it's about like, we're going to teach you how to measure this. And we're going to provide you some tooling to help you so you can measure your data quality. But if, if you know, your customer, whoever, like the use case doesn't require really, really high accuracy, but requires it to be very, very complete, because if there is not that completeness, then that completeness is the thing that, that breaks everything. But the accuracy, they only need it to be 90% because they need it within this time frame, And so like, helping people to understand that, um, you know, when people think about gold star data and they think about, you know, MDM and they think about all this stuff that it's like, it must all be 100% perfect, 100% accurate, 100% right, 100% complete everything. And it's like, that's not feasible or, or reasonable. So let's talk about what are you trying to accomplish? And, and I think that's where governance really is headed of like, what are we actually trying to do with this? Like, let's make it so that we can do business appropriately with data, but with the proper controls in place so we're all communicating and understanding. 
And I, I think that's exactly it, Scott. I think a lot of people think that there should be some kind of central standards. I had, had an email even just last week saying, could you tell me what stand, what data quality standards we should apply in my company? And you're going, well, no, because I don't know what your company does and I don't know what you're doing with the data. And the only people that know what you're doing with that data, and as you say, whether accuracy is important or completeness is more important, are the people who are using it. And that's why there are always going to be some external standards you can use, like you know, perhaps uh, the ISO country codes or currency codes. But there's an awful lot of the data quality standards are going to be reliant on what your organization is doing with that data and therefore what makes it good enough for them to use. Yeah, and, and um, yeah, I think we'll see more and more standards around measuring it, right? And I think that that's that's the only thing that we really should be looking to have standards of of like yes. how do we do the interoperability? How do we how do we standardize communication so that we can actually have high context exchanges and that we can we can trust and feel like the data lineage is is that. Sometimes it is like, I want to understand how this was computed, but a lot of times it's just, can I trust this? And if we remove that feeling of, can I, tr you know, do I need to trust this? Can I trust this? It, it really, what would that unlock for your business? Well, exactly. And I, you know, and, it, and it's just kind of, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to over the years who waste so much time and effort trying to fix data or find data before they do whatever their job is with the data. And if we can eradicate that, think about how much extra time people will be doing what we pay them to do and to use the expertise that we recruited them to have instead of, you know, I, I kind of often call it data wrangling. You know, <laughs> we have to go and wrangle this data before we can do our day job and sometimes it, it's horrendous I um I was doing some training for a, a client the other week and I was saying that over the years I think nearly every analytics or business intelligence team that I've worked with tells me that they think they waste around 50 percent some go a little bit higher of their team's time data wrangling not doing the reports and giving the insights to people that they need. And there was a data scientist on this workshop that I was doing from, for this organization. And he just suddenly said, I'm sorry, I've just got to come off mute and say, actually, I think we spend anything up to 90% of our time data wrangling. And you go, my God, I think how much money is that organization paying their team of data scientists? And they're doing most of their time data wrangling and not doing these amazing insights for the organization. And, and I think... Sometimes we get a little wrapped up in the data wrangling. How much is, is it actually like getting the understanding of it? And I think, you know, we, we, but if we can create the standards so that the people who are actually sharing the data, we, if we can create an easy or, or maybe not even standards, but that we create low friction ways for them to make it so that people don't can trust it and understand it and, and do that, like, how much does that save? And yet we're always in such a rush to get to the insight and put the insight into production instead of uh, kind of the safe, sensible, uh, like the long-term approach. It's like, we're so focused on what's the next week, not even what's the next quarter. So um, I would love to hear about, you know, you, you've been working with one specific client, but let's, let's not get into anything specific about that client. But like, how do you think about taking what you've learned, you know, you've got 20 years of doing data governance stuff, right? Like, um, you've got this, this, you've seen all the ways that don't work. So like, 
how do you think about starting to take these approaches and how would you adapt them to data mesh? And I know every organization is going to be slightly different, mm. but like, let's think about that, that federated approach and, and how do we, <laughs> how do we do that gently instead of it's a hard break? I think most things in data mesh shouldn't be about big bang. So we'd love to hear how you, how you thought about approaching it, how you would think about if you were to talk to anybody kind of generically rather than, uh, you know, kind of airing any dirty laundry or anything yeah. like that. I think, um, I think it's really interesting because the one thing that I've learned over the years and, and it's actually kind of gone into the methodology that I teach when I'm doing my training courses is that there is no standard approach for data governance, but there are some key building blocks that I've learned, and I'll be honest, the hard way by doing it wrong, um, that you have to address but how you address them is going to be slightly different depending on the organization. So I think I've, I always start every new client engagement with the, well, these are my building blocks and let's see how I'm going to adapt them for this organization. But I think what was really interesting doing data governance over data mesh for the first time was that you know, data mesh is still relatively new. It's an emerging tech, well, it's emerging technology, but it's not just the technology. And I think that's what really got my interest in it. It's much more about the socialization and the, the get the people side of, of it. And that's what I love about the data governance is it's the people side of it. And it's, I often say that data governance is more about the people than it is the data in the early early phases. So I was really interested to kind of get my head around data mesh because you know it's it is new and you know there's always new technologies come and go but because this one takes the the technology and the people side of it together I was really kind of interested in it and, and excited to learn more about it. So obviously the first thing I was doing like was like researching as much as I could to try and understand data mesh because I'm and the first few things I read I'm going actually you know this is far too techie for me I don't get this and then I realized that you know I had to not concentrate on the techie side you know somebody else is going to worry about that but I need to worry about how do we make sure that the data that goes onto the data mesh as a data product is as you say trusted it's the right data and it's trusted and how do we govern that going forwards and perhaps you know based on what we've said already in our conversation, govern isn't always the right word because it, it does, govern makes it sound like we're going to put obstacles in the way. But actually what we want is who's the right person to make decisions on this data so that it's there and available so that everybody knows what this data is. It's really well defined. Um, they know that if it's there on the data mesh, they can use it. And if they've got any questions about it, it's also clear who to go to. Because I think that's a lot of the problems of people is that they, they use the wrong data or poor quality data because they just don't know who to go and ask if it's the right data or how do I make it better. And I think that's what data governance gives you is that understanding of the data and who to talk to about it. So I think whilst I'm always kind of thinking about how do I, I adapt these things, normally some of the, the amendments I would make are subtle. But I think with the data mesh, it took some really actually good conversations with, with my client. We were we were kind of banding it backwards and forwards and and I'd say, we should do it like this. And they'll go, no, you can't be causing it. Oh. And then, and then they'd say something and I'm going, oh, that won't work because, and that would be based on perhaps one of my previous mistakes I'd made in years gone by. I'm going, I can't, you know, it never works. So I can't see that's not going to solve the problem in data mesh either. So it was a really collaborative, great way of, of working because they'd obviously done a lot of research into data mesh as well. And I think the, the big thing that we worked out is that 
you do need this more federated approach. And if anybody's read um, the book by Zamak Dagani, is that how I pronounce her name? I never know how to say it properly. <laughs> but but she has this lovely section on it that says, you must move from having a centralized data governance approach to a federated. And kind of when I read that, I went, but I've always had a federated approach. <laughs> so good news is I don't have to move from it. I don't think centralized data governance work uh, approach works very well anyway as I already said. So I think what we're trying to do is think, oh, well, that's great because so my way of, of doing it in the past isn't too dissimilar from it. But I think what we did find is that there are some perhaps new roles that we hadn't thought of before. And I always recommend that you keep your data governance framework as simple as possible. I find the more complicated you make it, the harder it is for people to get their head around it and then it doesn't get embedded and then it doesn't deliver any benefits. So I always love this, keep it simple. And I'll always challenge my clients if they try to put too many extra roles in. But when it came to data mesh, what we actually decided is we did need some extra roles. Um, and, you know, clearly you'd got roles like data engineer, which is mainly the technical side of it. But we wanted to make it clear that they can't just go and choose whatever data they like. So we needed something else in there. And um, they were going to have a data product owner as a role just to, to kind of meet their needs from doing the data mesh. And I realized that this should also be a data governance role. And we've had some really interesting conversations of moving some of the data owner and data steward responsibilities that you'd expect in a more, I can say whether you say traditional <laughs> or usual <laughs> data governance approach over to the, the data product owner. But there were some that I didn't feel comfortable moving over to them. So it's kind of, and it's not, I don't think you can lose the data owner and the data steward. You still need them. Um, but and I, what I think has been really interesting is that even when I do, you know, data governance in a more traditional setup, I can, I can almost guarantee you won't always get it exactly right when you start. And somebody else suddenly, even if it's a case of you didn't get the right data owner or they suddenly say, well, I can't decide this because, um, and you, you take on board what they say and you tweak things. So I always say that whatever framework you design on day one won't be the same, even like a month or two later. And I think that's, that's what happened. And I would, would kind of say to people, don't expect that you're going to get this right, particularly because there isn't a lot of people talking about data governance for data mesh. So nobody can say these are the best practices. You're going to get it perfect straight away. So I think you need a considered approach. I don't say you're going to change it. So do any old thing because then that'll go wrong. You put people's backs up and they won't like this data governance, but have a considered approach, but be open to the fact you might change it. Because I, I remember at one point I said to my client, do you not think the data product owners are going to be data stewards? So could we just conflate the roles and make it one role? And they said, no, absolutely not, and gave me what was a really good reason. So they convinced me and I went, okay, no, that's fine. Let's go for two separate roles. And then when I caught up with them recently, um, we were discussing some other things. They said, oh, um, funny thing is we had to move some of the responsibilities around because it wasn't working quite right and we weren't getting the results we wanted and it wasn't frictionless as you were saying it was and it shouldn't be about adding friction it should be about making this as easy as possible to get trusted data available to people and so they they hadn't got rid of any of the responsibilities they just moved them around the roles a little bit and it was quite funny as, as they were talking about it I suddenly said oh that's interesting so given what you've just told me are the data product owners sometimes the same people as data stewards 
And they said, they said, it's funny you should say that. We were thinking that only the other day that they are. And you're thinking, so we've almost gone like a full circle because when I suggested that to begin with, it didn't make sense with what we knew and understood about it. But now they've got data products live in the data mesh and they're using it. They've realized that perhaps the initial people they had as the data product owners were not the right people. And they found new people who coincidentally were, were also the data stewards for that data. Yeah, and, and um, Sarita Baxt at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, who's leading up their um, their governance um, for their data mesh. When she was on, she was talking about that within governance, especially around data mesh, you have to be even more flexible because you can't have a cookie cutter approach by domain. Everything is like we can be flexible around this. So what you just said is that in certain ones, it could be that the data product owner is the data steward, but in other ones, it should be separate and it you should be, which which frustrates people because everybody wants a cookie cutter. They want to, to be able to, to kind of stamp a whole lot of things and just do this in, in a lot of ways. Um, so you, you said you said a whole lot of things uh, that I could react to, but I, I think a good one would be talking about that evolution and talking about kind of how, when you started to get started, what do you think people need to have in place to get their first data products out the door? And yes, it's going to be different for each one, but people are constantly telling me they have to figure out all aspects of governance. And then you also talked about that tweaking. Like, how much do you think you want to do up front versus uh, prepare for iteration? You know, is it just start and and just uh, start with nothing and, and get that out there or spend at least, you know, a little bit? Mm, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one. It's a bit like that chicken and egg. So I do, I've always yeah. been a fan of an iterative approach, but I think you've got to have, something in place. You say, I, I've worked with clients over the years that have almost become paralyzed by the analysis. And that's not just on data mesh, just data governance, generally trying to design the perfect data governance framework. And I said, just, just get it good enough and start going kind of thing. It's almost like the minimum viable product, isn't it? And I think that's a good way of thinking is that we need to have an idea of what the roles and responsibilities are going to be. And we need to have um, some idea about the data standards um, and if we're going to have an idea about that, then we need to have engaged with the people in the business. But I think it is really useful to, to actually test them out on your first data products because it's all theory and particularly because this isn't something that a company has done before. So until you actually start trying to do it, it is all theory. So you can come up with this beautiful framework that would be, you know, really lovely. And then the very first time you use it, somebody's going to go, oh, I can't make that decision. Or, you know, I don't know that. I, I can't tell you that. So I think it's really good to have your idea of it, but not have it set in stone. It's a kind of, this is what I do. And I, and I think that's what I'd always recommend is, I absolutely think you need to have a policy. You need to have all this stuff mandated, but don't think that's the first thing to do. Get get an early design done and try it. Do it on your, your first phase. As, view it as a proof of concept. And that's when you realize that I asked Scott to make this decision and he just looked really bewildered and went, how do I do that? I don't know that kind of thing. And we went, ah, oh, perhaps Scott shouldn't be <laughs> that role kind of thing. Or is it that Scott is right because there's five responsibilities that we've given him and he can do four of them but this one is just we've given it to the wrong person kind of thing and then we can move the role and and I and I think that's 
that's how people have to think. The trouble is, if you're involved in this, whether from the governance angle or the data mesh angle, we're all data people and we all like things to be perfect and just right and neat and tidy. And I think we can tie ourselves up in knots in that. And sometimes we've got to say, it's good enough. Let's get started. And then let's go back and refine as we learn from our experiences of trying this. Well, and I think the cost of change in data has been huge, right? You think about the cost of a change in data warehouse and that, you know, if, if a lot of times what you'd have to do is re-implement <laughs> the data warehouse because it's like, okay, uh, everything is so rigid and, and we need to get to a place where, where we're able to evolve. And I think getting into that mindset and then also setting yourself up in such a way that you can, you know, I tell people, you know, uh, get to CYA of cover your dot, 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 but uh, for the um, for your, your initial thing, like what what's going to get you not in trouble? Um, uh, Sean Kaiser and Gustavo Drachenberg from ThoughtWorks, when they were on, they were talking about um, I asked them this question and they said, huh? Yeah, every single um of our first data products in, in all of our implementations, we haven't had PII in any of the, in the first things, because it's very difficult to really build that early on of the masking and things like that. So we found use cases where it wasn't valuable. And then once we figured out, like we got rid of other friction, we could, we could start to tackle that challenge. Um, So we'd love to give you time and space to react to that. But I also want to kind of circle back on one thing you said about like your building blocks, I don't know if that's uh, you know proprietary TM 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 type of thing, but like uh, we'd love to hear about um, those building blocks as well because I think that does factor into getting too good enough. Like, what are the the things that we need to kind of have a firm idea around, but be malleable, right? That it's it's firm, but malleable so that we can change it if it makes sense to, but that people can get going and actually not feel like it's all chaos. Yeah, no, of course. Well, my, yeah, my, my it, it's not, um, it, it's obviously something that I teach on my training course. And it, so, you know, it's not something I can tell you all the detail quickly anyway, but I always like to say that I always think that, you know, particularly when you're starting off is to to think about three things. And it's the it is the policy. Um, but bear in mind what I've already said, maybe not first, but your policy mandates it because otherwise it's just a nice to do. And I think particularly with things like data mesh and we've got data science, AI, ML, everybody gets really excited about these in a way that they don't get excited about data governance. And you say, and we get this unfair um, image of, of being blockers, which I think sadly some people have designed their frameworks that are blockers and that's not what we should be doing. So we're never going to get very far if we just ask people to do it nicely. So we do need a policy that mandates it that says, at our organization, we take data very seriously. Therefore, we have a data governance policy and you will do the following things. Now, I say you can't write the policy first, but I do think that's a really important building block. And any of my clients that I work with now, if they don't have one, I will call it out because I learned that the hard way. I spent about two years doing data governance in the bank where I was working when I first started doing data governance. And I thought I was making really good progress because I just got the sheer energy and enthusiasm and, and everybody came along with it. And then people started to say, well, we're really busy at the moment. Do we have to do it? And I go, but you said you'd do it. 
Why, why are we not doing it? And it was going, oh, no, well, we've got this big transformation program going on. We haven't got time for your data governance thing. Um, and I was going, but, but, but why are you not doing it? And they went, well, let's put it like this. I need to get this done. It's in my objectives. I need to get to deliver this. If audit aren't going to come and beat me up for not doing what you've asked me to do, why would I do it? And I was going, oh, that's brutal. <laughs> Very kind of, and that's when I realized that we have to have a policy. I would always rather sell the benefits of data governance to people, but we do need something that makes it mandatory for an organization. So I think within the first, I don't know, six months to a year of doing data governance, you should try and get your policy formalized and, and signed off. But apart from that, I think you need some processes because we need to be consistent in what we're doing around our data. And I think those processes will differ on what you're trying to do and achieve. And clearly the processes that you know we, we've designed at, at Renry have, that have been around getting the data ingested onto the data mesh. But for other people, it might be their master data management or their data warehouse so, you know, solutions. So you got to think, what, what are the processes? What is it I'm trying to achieve from doing this? And what processes do we need? Because again, something I didn't necessarily worry about too much. I just thought in the early days, I could inspire people to do it, and they'd all go and do the right thing. But if I don't give people very clear instructions on how to do that, they're going to do things in an inconsistent manner. And, you know, you might, for all the right reasons, decide to fix and improve some data. But if you don't tell somebody who uses that data downstream, you might cause them more problems. So it's all about having a process so we can be consistent. But I actually think that the roles and responsibilities are the key of all of the building blocks. And the reason I say this, I'm sure, Scott, you have been to the same kind of meetings I have over the years where everybody is in violent agreement. We all agree what's going to be done. You know, nobody has any, you know, dissent at all in the room. And we all go away real excited. We've agreed something. It's going to happen. And then we come back and everybody says, so... Um, did you do that? And everybody's looking at me and I go, um, oh, I, I, I wasn't going to do it. I thought Scott was going to do it. And Scott says, oh, no. And, and you look at somebody else. And, and that's the whole problem with data governance is not having people sign up and know that it's their role and their responsibility to do certain things. Because, you know, over all the years that I've been doing this, I've had countless conversations with people about why they should do data governance in their organization. And I can promise you, I have never said, had anybody tell me that they shouldn't do it. Everybody agrees it's a very sensible idea and that they should do it. But I can't tell you how many people then tell me that they can't do it because, and they come up with all sorts of, of reasons why we can't do it. Or they always assume that somebody else will be doing it for them maybe even the central team, going back to our very early conversation in this. So what we need to do is to make it very clear what the roles are and what the responsibilities of those roles are. And then we need to identify who fills those roles. And I think that is kind of the key to it all, because if we don't have people doing that. Apologies, we had an audio issue here. I think it's fair to say that over the years, I have spoken to countless people in organizations trying to convince them of the need to do data governance at their, at their company. And I don't think anybody's ever said to me that they shouldn't do data governance. If you explain it properly, everybody agrees that they should do it, but they always have this impression that it's difficult or it can't be done. So I'm often told that it can't be done for whatever reasons, or that it should be done, but never by the person I'm talking to, always by 
somebody else. So, you know, going back to perhaps a conversation we had very early on in this in this session about, you know, perhaps, you know, they have this belief that the central team is going to do it all for them. And, you know, I think this is why the roles and responsibilities are so crucial to a successful data governance implementation, because we need to make it very clear what each role is responsible for. And then we need to tell the people which role they're playing in that and get them engaged and signed up to doing that. And that's the only way to make it work. I've seen too many people put things like, um, you know, the business are responsible for. And I go, but who in the business? <laughs> it's not going to happen if we don't know who in the business is going to do it. Yeah. And, and so I've got um, one would be, I, I want to ask you a little bit about how do we actually make it so that it's easy? Like, how do we remove the friction of actually doing data governance so so people can make it very, very um, uh, simple to actually comply with that? But I'd also like to to kind of dig into a bit about, um, like, again, where if, if people were getting started, like, th- things are going to change. That hasn't been something that I've seen that's very often communicated about data governance is that we are going to change. We understand that this isn't right at the start. So how do you take in that feedback? How do you get people um, bought in that that's a thing, that, that there, it's not just that we, we are all knowing we are the central brain and, and everything must, must comply versus like, how do you get them so they're they're bought in that that you're taking in that feedback appropriately? So I I think there's people underestimate significantly how much effort you have to put into communications when you're doing data governance, and I think that is one of the key things that you have to do. You have to manage people's expectations, and I think particularly so because it is really common that an organization for whatever reason will decide it needs to do data governance. And they'll often look to people already in their organization to take that on and start doing it. But these people haven't heard of data governance before until they've suddenly went, oh, Scott, you know about data. You can do data governance for us, can't you? And and so quite often, you know, these people are, you know, scrabbling on the internet, listening to podcasts, whatever, trying to to get their head around what data governance is and then work out how to do it for their organization as well. So I think that um, if you pretend that you're all-knowing and to know how to do the data governance perfectly, it's going to go wrong. And I think what I've seen is that people who do really good communications explain that, you know, data governance, there is no standard of framework that that works for everybody. There's no one size fits all. So we're working through everything that materials available to us and we're trying to design something that's right for us. Um, And and I think it it also fits in nicely to this iterative approach that we talked about. You can't get it right in one go. So you say to people, we're doing this iteratively. We're going to work with something. And that's picking up what you're saying about that other um, podcast guest you had from from ThoughtWorks saying that they don't do PIA first because it's too hard. So I would always say to clients, do something, you know, fairly easy first. That's great. Then perhaps do something hard in your second attempt. Because if you do something only easy for the first few iterations, it's going to come as a shock. (laughs) 
you know, six months, a year down the line when you try to do data governance over something a bit more complicated and it doesn't work and you've got to rip up your whole framework and start again, which is not what we want. So I quite often like to get all of my potential data owners identified fairly early on, even if I'm not going to come to you and talk to you about data governance very actively for for months, because I want you to be aware of what we're doing. And I want you to get the chance to say, ah, well, when you come to finance or HR or whatever, that won't work for us because so that we've already got that feedback in. So it won't be perfect, but I'm trying to get everybody engaged and understanding that we're not designing something that's rigid and it will just be shoehorned in whether you like it or not. We're taking on board everybody's feedback and and we're communicating all the way along, explaining why we're doing what we're doing, explaining that, you know, encouraging people to come to us if it's not working. I've made several of my clients panic over the years of going into difficult stakeholder meetings with them to support them. And then, you know, people saying, but it's going to be more work and I haven't got time and everything. And and I've I've got a habit of saying, well, you know, yeah, that's, you know, a very valid concern. And and I promise you, if you start doing this and it takes you more effort to do data governance and you get back in benefits, you can come to your data governance lead and tell them to change the data governance framework. At which point, you know, the data governance manager sitting next to me totally unprepared for that normally goes white, then red and then white again. <laughs> but, but it's the kind of thing you have to say. And I think that's what I really did wrong all those years ago was I was so passionately bought into my framework that I designed. I was so proud of it that I wasn't willing to concede that I might have got it wrong. Um, and that caused the whole thing to fail. Whereas if I'd said, oh, okay, that's not working. What do I need to do differently? I could have saved it. And I, and I think that value-add governance is something that we don't talk about enough of like, how do we, I think in data mesh, there is the computational aspect of it as well that we need to Again, we need to make this so that it is easy for people to comply with the processes and that the processes add value. And, and some of that is risk mitigation. Some of that is, you know, okay, we have PII here. So we do have actual ma- manual access control because the people need, or we have something that could be misused, right? Like if this information could be misused, we have to register what your actual use case is with the the data owner so they can make sure this isn't going to get themselves in trouble, right? Like this needs to be something. But outside of that, really, it's this can be something that really adds a lot of value because you are making it so that they don't have to do the data wrangling. You are making it so that then, um, you know, and it's not just the kind of reverse or the prisoner's dilemma of, well, if I don't participate, but everybody else does, then I get great quality data from everybody else internally. And I don't have to do the extra work. Like how do we make that so that it's not that, that we can actually find ways where, a data producer gets value from their own data that is produced. It's it's not necessarily easy, but it's something we have to figure out. I I think so, and I you know I, I've come across this so many times. You shouldn't be doing data governance because somebody told you to. There's got to be some value in it. Um, and as you say, the the producers sometimes that's the hardest thing. But you made me think of um, a, another insurance company I worked with many years ago now, where um, for some reason. The underwriting teams didn't put the tax codes in when they set up new clients. Um, 
and it was causing the 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 finance team uh, the tax team huge amount of pain and effort every quarter when they had to do the regulatory reporting to the various tax authorities around the world and so they asked me they said well it's a data quality issue because the data is missing so can you beat up the underwriting teams for us and and i went and said to them look you know you need to be putting this data in there we don't have to it's in our procedure so they even waved the manual at me that says you don't have to do this because finance do and i said well, finance do because you don't. And they went, well, we're not interested in it. We don't care about the tax code. We've got other things to do. And it's that same kind of attitude that you see time and time again from the data producers who are responsible for putting in data that they don't use. So they don't care about it. But luckily, I was able to find out that it did have an impact on them. And I said, so when finance put the codes in for you, um, do they cause you any stress? And they went, oh, God, yes because they always ring at the quarter end when we're really, really busy and they demand that we have to give them the tax codes with like no notice whatsoever and we have to go rummaging in the paper files to find the tax codes. I told you it was a few years ago. And, and then we have to email it to them, so they do it. And I went, so would it not be far quicker when you have that form in front of you to not put it into the system and then finance won't ring you at a really bad time for you? And they went, oh, yeah. So I think it's always that tying it back to, so yes, they didn't use that data. They thought they had no interest in it, but it was the the lack of it being there was causing them pain. And I managed to get them on board and, and they started doing it and realized that there was something in it for them in actually putting the data in correctly. I'm just loving the quote unquote, no notice. Cause it's like, it happens every quarter. Like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> have you not recognized this pattern? Um <laughs> No. And another one is people always telling me, oh, no, we don't have a problem. We have a manual workaround or even say like a monthly manual workaround. You're going, yeah, OK. Did you not listen to what you just said? <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes like I, I do think at in some cases, what is the return on investment? Right. Like uh, I have had some, you know, I, I used to work in covering stock stuff and things like that. And there were certain reports that we could automate but that it would take me 20, 30 hours to automate. And it was something that that um, took me 10 minutes every week to do. So it just never would pay back. And it was like the, the actual automation wasn't um, a big thing. But we had one report where we were tracking like 70 different companies and the data entry took four hours. And it was often filled with, um, with uh, lots and lots of manual issues. But I had come up with a way to scrape the data and we expanded it to 300 companies and it took one second, right? Because wow. it was just it was just a copy paste in that just made it. So then mm. you just did this, this, this and boom. So we were able to, to 4X and give us way more information, but automate it because it, it paid for itself. So um, I, I, I wanted to maybe do a little bit of a hard shift here because there is one question that we were talking about in the, the pre-call that I think is something that has come up a whole lot. So I wanted to, to give you some space to, to answer about how you looked at it and how you're thinking about it, because I think this is one, I mean, you know, more people are going to come to you and say, okay, well, you fix this for me too. <laughs> but, but I think it's, it's just useful to put in front of people, which is um, in data mesh, you know, finding the owner of the source data is relatively easy unless there are five different domains that have the same quote unquote source data. And then it's like, okay, do, like, how do we deal with that? But 
Um, when you have kind of downstream data products that are from multiple upstream data products, like who manages that? Who owns that? How do you do that? Um, how do you figure it out in the early days versus, you know, you, once you form that process, you might have a little bit of a uh, better framework around it. But the first time you run into it, it's like, okay, but now what do we do? Like, <laughs> mm. And I, I, well, I think it's, it's not too dissimilar to, to thinking about just normal um, data governance over perhaps uh, on a, on a data warehouse, because um, I think I've even made videos on it because the number of people that say to me, well, um, who owns the data on, on the reports? And again, well, the original data owners, unless you've changed it. So if you have, you know, transformed that data, you've perhaps you've aggregated it, or perhaps you've done some kind of derivation to create this data, then perhaps it's not the original data owner. But if you've got a report that has, you know, gross written premium and gross written premiums owned by Fred, I don't know, then Fred still owns it if it's in your report or if it's in your data product on the mesh. So it's kind of but when it's different is is when you're saying when we suddenly get them, perhaps we pull them all together and we create some new thing that didn't exist before, then we need a new data owner for it. And I think that's the way to try and think about it. But I think the thing that I found perhaps the hardest to get my head around with a data mesh is that, you know, yeah, it will make data so much more accessible. And this is really, really great. But you have a data product that you rightly said, you might have multiple data products that have some of the same source data in. And so I, and, and each of those data products may have a different product owner, a different data product owner. So I don't want them making decisions about the source data. They might make a decision about how we bring it together, how we calculate it, how we derived something. But I, I don't want three different people making potentially inconsistent decisions about that data. And I think that was one of the hardest things that I found because up until that point, I was thinking, oh, well, we just scratch the data owner role and it's been replaced by the data product owner role. And then I realized that I can't because the more I was talking to my client and get my head around it is that it won't always be necessarily the same data product owner that owns every product that has that same source data in. And I want somebody just just one person to have that holistic overview of the data in an organization. In an ideal world, outside of the data mesh as well, they own that data wherever it is, whether it's on the original source system, your data mesh, your data warehouse, um, in, in a report somewhere. I want them to be the one person who really gets what that data is. Well, and, and I think this is uh, where data literacy comes in and, and can be a challenge is if we're trying to make data more accessible to more people, they might not know how to track the SLA of SLA of SLA. This, this piece of data is updated in the original source system every day, and then it's pulled into this on you know a, a weekly basis. So like how fresh, and then somebody else pulls it off of that and says, oh, well, you know, so you've got the kind of uh, original tier data product. Somebody has created something that's uh, a data product and that's only updated every week. But then somebody tries to pull off of that and say that their data product is refreshed every day, but it's got a source that's only every week. And so it's not, and, and that you get through these things of, of, um, you know, trying to go directly to the source 
so that you're the one that you're not tapping into downstream of downstream of downstream, but then are you redoing the same combinations of data where you are, you know, uh, crossing these, these three things of data and you're doing a bunch of the same computational work. It becomes a challenge and it becomes a thing. And I think every single organization, it's going to be slightly different. It's something that everybody needs to, to look at. But um, if we're just trying to do that in a computational way, somebody who's not as familiar with data may not know, may not be able to really think through what are the actual ramifications of doing it in this one way versus the other. And what does that mean for the data that you're ingesting, right? It's, it's, it's a difficult thing to get your arms around, even if you really know data. And when, when we're trying to, to bring it into the hands of more people, um, uh, Marisa Fish on her episode made a really good point of when we're trying to share information, right? Not just the ones and zeros of data, but when we're trying to share information, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to give people the ability to augment their own insights, to create their own insights, augment their own understanding? Or are we trying to share with them our, or you know, somebody specifically, their packaged insights? And so I think if we're trying to, I think this is something that comes up a lot, especially around data governance of like, what are you actually trying to achieve with this? And it's fine to, to lower the bar to people getting access to insights. And if they want to stream, swim upstream to get to the data and, and form their own things and stuff, but we can package these things into better dashboards and things like that. You know, the whole death of the dashboard thing is ridiculous to me because it's like, if you've got packaged insights, and they haven't changed. Somebody needs to own, has that changed? But yeah, it's just all kind of jumbled together in mind. But like data governance to me is about exchanging information, like and doing that in such a way that is compliant and useful and and but valuable and that people can actually understand what it means and all that. So like it, it I feel like a lot of these conversations go into putting out data for data people instead of putting out insights for people that aren't data people. And so like, I would love talked at you a whole lot there, but is there anything that where you've, you're, you're seeing that that's been helpful or, or cause you've been on the ground, right? I haven't been on the yeah. ground doing this. So I, I, I think you're right. And I, I think it's a, it's a mixture, as you say. And I think that, you know, if you view data mesh as just a way of getting you know, the data to the same people who were using it before, then it's almost like a wasted opportunity, isn't it? This is the, the you know, getting it available and accessible to people, as you say, to get insights who perhaps wouldn't otherwise. But I think our problem with that is exactly what you said, is that these people aren't data people. I think that's why data literacy plays a huge part in it. And I think, you know, I've obviously, I've, I've been doing data literacy training for the, well, I would say for many, many years, I've probably only called it data literacy more recently because for me, that was part of doing a data governance implementation is that we had to start changing the mindset and the culture in an organization to get them to understand that data was an asset and that we needed to manage it the way we do our other assets. 
And so I think I've been doing that as part of the comms and training around data governance for many, many years. And it's only in this, you know, this last couple of years, you know, everywhere you look on LinkedIn, there's something about data literacy. And um, I and then thought, I'm going to have to look into it and see what it was. And I'm thinking, oh, I've been doing that. I just didn't call it data literacy. Um, and so it's that kind of, I'm quite pleased that there is this kind of focus on it at the moment, because I think we're getting to this... It, it's everybody should be data people, but there's going to be different degrees of it. Some people just need to know that actually I, it's just important that I put this data in correctly because somebody else in the, the organization is using this data and it's really important to them. But somebody else needs to understand what that data is, where it came from, what can I use it for? And they're the people that might be then looking at our data glossary that we've built as part of having data gloss, uh, data governance. So I think having these different levels of, of literacy is really important, but I think we need a base layer level for everybody, maybe not the cleaners or something like that, but <laughs> generally everybody needs to understand that their job does involve data, even if they don't think it does. Well, and, and teaching them how and why it's a value and, and, and why it's a value to their career, why it helps level mm. them up, like all Absolutely. of those things. I, I really hate the citizen data scientist concept. And I think uh, that was something that was a flash in the pan. But I think the data citizen concept of like, you know, we, if, well, sometimes in the US, it doesn't feel like it, but we live in a society, right? Being part of a society, it's important to think about how you impact others and how you, what what role you play in that society. And that exactly what you talked about, are are, are you somebody who's, it's important that we get this right. And, and you may not be consuming a lot of the data, but it's important because it's important for your domain. It's important for your, your role and making sure people understand that, but also making it so that more people can form their own insights and that we can have, you know, kind of this, it's, it's almost like when you talk to data people that are really against data mesh, a lot of times it's, it is somewhat, we don't want the, I mean, those are, are kind of uh, the, the cave people and we don't want them to, to do it because they're not going to know what's going on. And it's like, well, they're the cave people because you all have kind of kept them the cave people. Somewhat is that we haven't had the, the uh, ability to do it. Some of it's not the tooling that's been there to make it, the, but a lot of it's just because you're like, you're just keeping them down. And so, um, but you can't just give them access to data. East Oldfield's episode talked about this. Of If you just give them access to data and not the understanding, the literacy of how to actually use it, then they're, they're going to create chaos because they're going to get the wrong insights because they don't understand what they're actually looking at. So it is a balance. And I think a lot of what you talked about is that this, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but it sure was burned down in one, right? Of like, we need to build towards this. We need to iterate towards this and you don't have to get it all right. And you're going to, to add value, constantly look for that value, constantly look for why are we doing this? Don't make this a three-year um, thing before you see value, but like, how do we actually create those conversations? I think, and, and that we're open about this because this isn't the way business has really been done, right? It's not, governance has no. been viewed as the gatekeeper, even if they haven't been. And I, and I think I think you're spot on, Scott. And I think the challenge you have is that 
it's not the same message to everybody you know and and everybody thinks that we can do one thing so um in a few weeks time i'm going to do a date to literacy lunch and learn for a client um and that is a really hard thing to prep for because i'm having people from every level across every part of their organization could potentially join this session and in an ideal world, I want to know that I'm talking to Scott. Scott's job is this. So therefore, I need to talk to him about this kind of data. Um, whereas if, if you're from the finance team and I'm talking all about the, the, the product data and the sales data, you're going to go, oh, well, she's not talking about anything interesting to me. So it's it's really hard. Um, and Because I, I think people think, oh, this is really easy. Well, just do one communication, tell everybody data is important, and they'll all get it. and We'll all live happily ever after. But it doesn't work that way we've got to kind of tailor the messages. So obviously the lunch and learn I'm doing for the client is going to be like a starting point. And I know that their plan is then to go to individual team meetings to then say, well, taking what you learned on that, what data do you use? Why is it important? How would understanding and using that data better or thinking about it differently help you? And I think that is the challenge because that's an awful lot of work. And an awful, awful lot of communications to make sure we get the right message to everybody. Yeah, this um, I've talked about this in a lot of episodes, and I keep using the phrase unicorn farts. And that to me is anytime you go to write data mesh in something that's going to be in front of anybody that is not on the data team is not like really deeply involved. Call it call it unicorn farts, like copy, find, replace because you're going to remove that, you know, people are like, oh, you see, you want me to put out documents that say we're doing unicorn farts? No, I don't want you to put in data mesh because it's not relevant to them. You need to tailor it to what matters to them. Like, why is this useful or, or what's what's the, sorry, Gabby wants to make uh, an appearance on, on the podcast. Um, but uh, so much of exactly what you just said, of if, if you try and have the same message to everybody, it's kind of like, when you're thinking about who are your data consumers, right? Should the the same information be in front of everybody or, you know, in the marketplace, it's for kind of that lowest common denominator of people to get a basic understanding, but you might have advanced documentation that the data scientists are the only ones who, who are able to see. And it's not that you're being exclusionary. It's just, they're the only ones that are going to be it's going to be relevant to. So like, do you try and make it so that everybody trying to explain data mesh, you know, when I'm trying to explain it to my parents, they have no idea what any of the, you know, what data governance means, any of that stuff. So um, I think that's, that's so important. I think it's, it's really crucial to think about, it's not excluding somebody it's, and it's not talking down to them, but it's like, do they really have to care about this? Does that matter to them? If not, then why, why cognitively overload them? Why put that in their head if it's not going to be anything that's good to them? So exactly what you talked about of trying to tailor that message is so difficult because if you're talking to 50 different kind of role types, how do you make it so that other than data is important to your role, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then, and then that's kind of really bland and doesn't mean anything. So nobody takes it on board. Yeah, exactly. So um, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Um, I, I really enjoyed it, and I think it's going to help advance a lot of the way people are are thinking, and also just feeling comfortable about that it's okay to not have all the answers to be moving forward with your. It, it's yeah. like cover your butt, 
make sure you don't you're not going to get yourself into regulatory compliance, but look for use cases where that's not the case. And then I, I like your your thing of don't just go for the easy things to do for the first you know x number of months because then it's gonna it is gonna hit you like a, a ton of bricks. It's like you know. Um, doing exercises and you're doing really, really lightweight stuff. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to do a heavy day. And then you're like, okay, I can't move the day after that. So, <laughs> but is there anything that we didn't cover that you think we we should in kind of wrapping up? Or is there any way you'd like to kind of in general wrap up the episode, put a button on it? Um, I think it probably came across um, during the, the discussion, but I just love to tell people, you know, just to make it really, really blunt is that if you're doing data mesh without data governance, I believe it will go wrong and you won't get the results that you need. So really, it's really, really vital that you do data governance if you're doing data mesh. Yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree. It's it's one of those where it's like it's one of the pillars for a reason. It wasn't specifically called out in Jamak's first paper, but in the in her first blog post, but her second one on Martin Fowler's site, it's like, no, like this is one of the four pillars. If you try and skip one of the pillars, you don't have to build your columns to the sky when you think about pillars. You don't have to build all of them up entirely. But like, if you just try and start it without this, you're, you're nothing works together. You're not reducing the friction. You're you're following the same path that has caused us to break. So I fully agree with you. I think that's um, I think in general, if if you're of any size and you're not doing data governance, you know, please rethink. I don't want to say shame on you, but please rethink. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure there are going to be a lot of people that want to follow up with you about this and and other things, um, you know, as well as being a consultant. Obviously, if anybody would like to to do that, you've got training courses and all that stuff. Um, What's where's the best place? What's the best way? And, you know, I'll drop links to stuff in the show notes. Thank you. So, I mean, everybody's welcome to follow me or, or connect with me on LinkedIn, but I'd probably direct you to my website, which is just nicolarascom.com because um, I've gone out on my way over the years to try and create loads of free resources. To uh, They're all the kind of things that I wish I had in the early years. So there's loads of good things on there as well as links to my podcast, my my YouTube channel. So there's loads of uh, hopefully helpful resources. So please you know, feel free to go and avail yourself of them. Yeah, they, they are very useful. I've listened to a few of the, the podcast episodes and they help to kind of cement some things. And as somebody who's new to, to data governance, it's it's um, really helped me from that aspect. So, but again, uh, Nicola, this has been so great. Thank you so much for spending the time today. And, and thank you as well, everyone out there for listening. Thank you for having me. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Nicola Askham, the data governance coach. You can find links to her website, podcast, and LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of 
throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.